Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just coming up to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. And today we'll have part two of the story of New Caledonia, the history, the present and the past with historian and author, researcher Nick McClellan. Some good news, some sad news and some bad news from Western Sahara with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Brother Peter Bray, who's the Vice-Chancellor of the Bethlehem University in Palestine, will be talking about the challenges of a university in the West Bank. And crisis in Mindanao. Peter Murphy has just returned from 10 days in Mindanao and it's not a happy story there at all. But let's hear first from Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when I might never go away again. Go away for a week, and that staple of satire, Barnacle, is scraped off the ship of state, sinking into oblivion to become, at best, the future answer to a trivia question. In the course of which we did learn one thing. He can count. He can count counting as one of his very limited abilities. I've been in heaps of fights. I'm going nowhere. One, two... Three, uh, this will blow over in no time. Uh, I'm going nowhere. One, two, three. Look, it's just water under the bridge. Well, well, thanks to me, not too much water under the bridge. Now, let's see. One, two, three, uh, three, uh, one, two. Uh. Let me say it would be in the interest of the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party and the government... Bye-bye, Barnacle. And thanks to the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party for finding the best possible way to celebrate Sunday's Mardi Gras. Elect a new Supremo, Michael McCormack the Rich Richer, who wrote extensively as editor of the local Wagga Rag about LGBTI people long before it was fashionable. Editorial after editorial, denouncing anything but marriage between a man and a woman blessed by the dear baby Jesus. So no doubt Michael was out there Sunday at the cathedral praying that these sinners see the light. The evil of their ways. Oh, and while he's at it praying for sinners, he might even pop in a word to Jesus for Barnacle, who's now so popular, the first thing Michael said upon his election was, I'm not Barnacle. Very, very important to make that clear. Although showing his respect for his new love, Barnacle said the dear little baby also might not be Barnacle. Barnacle's contribution to International Women's Day. Not nonetheless a strong enough contribution to go anywhere near picking up the Feminist Solidarity Award of the week. Well, we all know who got this. It's a walk-up start, albeit behind a white screen, and another fine example of why we need more women like Maggie Thatchtear and Golda Meir and, well, our very own Michaelia Kosh the Workers to bring the sensitivity and empathy women like them can bring. And for so obviously dedicated a feminist as Macadia, it must have hurt 
hurt, hurt to have to cosh the workers, the women workers, in Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo little Billy Shorten Ambition's office to have to infer every one of them was screwing anything that moved in Parliament House and beyond. I didn't say that. I, I said it's a rumour. Now, a small diversion here, true story. When little Billy was a minister in the Socialist Government, the caring business class lot spread a rumour he had had an affair with a staffer named Shannon, whom he made pregnant. Only problem was, the making pregnant bit would have been a miracle. Shannon was a bloke. True. Anyway, poor Macalia, doing her bit to bring a little bit of morality to Canberra, and they reckon she should apologise, when she showed in a past life as Minister for Caring Business Class Relations and Coshing the Workers, she so admired little Billy, she sent the, sorry, the coppers raiding his ex-office. Oh, well, correction, sorry, Macadia, she didn't send them. She had no idea, and even less idea, one of her staffers had tipped off the media about what she had no idea about. But she did say she blamed the evil socialists for forcing the number one smash the union's jackboots commissioner, Nigel Hedge, kiss the bosses, to resign. They forced an honest man who simply hated evil unions and evil workers to lose his obscenely paid position for no better reason than he broke the law. Uh, that is the law he was obscenely paid to uphold, Macadia. Uh, there was a rumour to that effect. Perhaps the most logical comment came from some government minister, or rather Thursday, who said the carry-on about Macalia's burst of feminist solidarity was a socialist party plot. Apparently some mischievous socialist ventriloquist put the words in her mouth, and Malcolm said she'd been bullied by the evil socialists. So poor bullied Macalia had no choice but to bully defenceless women workers. Either way, Macalia, your Feminist Solidarity of the Week Award is on its way, and congratulations from all of us. Putting in a bid for the title, but unable to compete with Macalia, Alice Costa, real name, a Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin columnist who got stuck into the ABC for celebrating IWD with an All Women Presenters Day, which it started last year, something this station has been doing for years. The ABC man band will swoop back on International Women's Day like the flight of the vengeful Valkyries. Alice displayed her literary skills. Yes, sirree, or should that be ma'am, <laughs> Artie will controversially bench most of its high-profile male TV and radio hosts for 24 hours to promote gender equality. Hold up. Sounds more like gender inequality. And on and on she went. Nice try, Alice, and certainly a fine example of feminist solidarity, but we'll try again next year. But isn't yes surreal, should that be ma'am, so clever, so brilliant, it had me in stitches. One hard-done-by woman we have to feel for, whose dreadful experience exposes the injustice of the legal system, is that filthy rich woman in Britain facing court on a traffic charge who argued she could not lose her licence on the most reasonable grounds that the driveway to her mansion is so long she could not be expected to walk it. 
and she could not be sentenced to community service because, and this is the bit I liked, and this is true, because she said she had never done a day's work in her life. A watertight criminal defence. And despite her most reasoned arguments, presumably through some ultra-expensive ultra silk prepared to descend into a lower court for the appropriate fee, the bloody bench did force her to walk the driveway. The report I read didn't mention if she also had to break her lifelong aversion to work. Don't we lose our faith in the legal system when we hear of such miscarriages? Although justice for some, non-filthy rich bludgers following the budget office praising a $5 billion office saving and growing, growing by scraping disability pensioners off the ship of state. Or as the true Blavosi Capitalist Review opened its story under the headline, Disability Crackdown Pays Off, a sustained five-year crackdown on disability support applicants is generating big dividends for the government. We tracked down one of these bludgers in a comfortable little Elizabeth Street gutter. What injustice! You're, you're reduced to begging and living without a roof over your head. No, no, I can always duck under the gutter when it rains. Well, duck a bit slowly due to only having the one leg and, and half an arm and, and not being able to see where I'm going too well. But no, no, it's not unjust. The government doctor who now makes the decisions made it quite clear I don't qualify as disabled anymore. To be honest, I feel a sense of patriotism. Feel my life is now worthwhile. I lie here knowing I am generating big dividends for the government. But he better watch out. After watching a commercial telly report last night, I feel a lot more secure today. And if you saw it, listener, we feel a lot more secure today. Thanks to Lord Rupert of Wapping and his Wapping Sin and the commercial telly in-depth reports, we know our society is swamped with violence, thuggery, fear, namby-pamby judges and magistrates who impose weak-kneed sentences, OK, OK, after wading through page after page of crime running riot and perpetrators getting away with patently inadequate sentences and the need for even more prisons, maybe bring back the stocks, the lash, the noose, there was this small single column report buried away in a recent whopping sin that crime rates, including youth crime rates, had fallen. Fallen. Can't be true. But this item was so buried back in the book that clearly it is of no significance anyway. So last night's reassuring news. We're getting 800 new uh, uh, girls and boys in blue. And the report showed them training in how to protect us, make us feel more secure, learning how to bash us with batons, hit us with potentially lethal tasers, spray us with potentially lethal capsicum. They didn't show them learning how to shoot us or how to put the nails in the batons or sharpen their boots, but enough for me and hopefully you, listener, to sit back and breathe a sigh of relief and exhale. That bashing and firing and spraying makes me feel so secure. And State Big Supremo, the pejorative Dan, said all these heavily armed giant mines turned loose on our streets was the only way to make us feel more secure. Imagine what we'd cop or how many of them if crime rates were not going down. The caring business class party supremo and would-be state big supremo Matthew, he's our business class guy, wasn't happy, wasn't happy. He said the extra cops should have been introduced 
three years ago. Uh, that's just after your lot lost government, Matthew. Exactly. Finally, a whole bunch of the top 100 caring employers accompanied big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull to the US of the UN of the US of the world, presumably tax-deductible, to maintain their fight for those true blue Aussie workers they so care about. And after delving into a bit of in-depth economic philosophy with USR big supremo Donald Tramble the poor, to a person they agreed the solution for true blue Aussie workers was screaming at us. Slash taxes on the filthy rich. Screaming at us day after day after day. Donald expressed his in-depth philosophy as he walked into the room to meet the true blue Aussie barons of filthy riches. Direct quote, there's a lot of money in the room. They had appealed to his finer nature. And we can't think of a finer nature. Good afternoon. And, of course, that was Mr Kevin Healy. And if you'd like another hour of Mr Kevin Healy, the place is 3CR, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for City Limits. Now, the second and final part of my interview with researcher and journalist Nick McClellan looking at the history, the present and the future for New Caledonia, one of our closest Pacific neighbours. How did the people fare during World War II? Well, it was a time of massive transformation. You have to remember, of course, that colonies aren't democracies. The very nature of colonialism is it's anti-democratic. And so in the first half of the 20th century, a lot of people didn't get to vote. They eventually established, after the, the, you know, the prison period and the settlement period, which was ruled by a governor, eventually there was legislative assemblies created, but for white men. And so women, indigenous Kanaks, or indentured labourers, none of them had the vote up until the uh, Second World War. I mean, Australia got, women got the vote pretty early by global standards. New Zealand and Australia were at the forefront of women's suffrage in terms of giving women even with restrictions, the right to vote. French women didn't vote until after the Second World War. And so the Second World War was a massive turning point because New Caledonia, and particularly the area around Noumea, became a military base. The Americans, as well as deploying to Townsville in Australia, deployed to New Caledonia. And it was an important stepping-off point um, after the Battle of Guadalcanal, the turning uh, of the Japanese advance into the southwest Pacific, the Americans eventually fought their way back across Micronesia on their way to Japan. Um, once again, that's another tale. But New Caledonia still today bears the, um, the marks. There's a suburb called Motopool in Numea. Um, there's another suburb called Receiving. And both of those, as the name suggests, were places where uh, all the vehicles were stored for, for the American forces uh, during the war. And it was incredible for the Kanaks. Many were hired as labourers to assist with the American military operations, and they worked alongside African-American troops and uh, saw that black and white GIs were given similar pay and, to a certain extent, similar conditions. Although the Marines were a particularly racist outfit, the U.S. Army um, had some segregated uh, areas, but also a lot of cooperation. And to see the massive wealth of the United States, um, to see uh, things... I, I interviewed an old man who'd worked for the Americans during the war. He had a picture of Roosevelt on the wall of his traditional cars, his hut, going back to that time. And he said, oh, the Americans, they couldn't fight without their chewing gum. 
Uh, well, it's a phrase I've always remembered, and uh, it was a time of incredible turmoil. Of course, France had been occupied by Germany at that time, so the notion that the c- colonial power was all-powerful was smashed, once by the fact that the French had been humiliated by the German takeover, and secondly by the w- massive wealth and power of um, the United States. And this period was captured by an Australian writer. There was a young journalist who wrote his first book called Pacific Treasure Island, and his name was Wilfred Burchett. Burchett travelled in 1940-41 to uh, New Caledonia, and Australia actively supported the Gaullist forces. We sent a warship, HMS Adelaide, to Numea to put down, help the French Gaullists put down a, uh, the pro-Vichy government, the pro-German government at the time. So Australia helped with a, essentially a coup d'etat against the Vichy forces in 1940. And Burchett, as a young journalist growing up from Poowong in Gippsland, decided to travel to New Caledonia. It's a wonderful book. It's worth reading. And he captures that whole history of revolt and resistance. Doesn't understand the Canucks very well, but he certainly captures the spirit of the commune and the spirit of anti-fascism. And he says that as Australians... As the Pacific is changing, we need to look to our neighbours, we need to understand our neighbours. It's a, a very insightful piece from a young guy in the middle of the, the Second World War at a time of incredible racism against Japanese and so on to be thinking that Pacific Islanders were our neighbours and that we needed to understand them. A quite insightful piece. And so that was a real turning point. The final piece of the jigsaw, of course, was communism. During the Second World War, the Soviet Union's resistance to fascism um, the massive losses of uh, the Soviet people, the Russian people against uh, the Nazi forces, raised enormous prestige for communist parties. The whole history of Stalinism wasn't debated as much as it is today, but um, within New Caledonia, the French Communist Party uh, started organising. A woman, Jean Tunica Icasas, and uh, Florindo Palladino set up Friends of the USSR and uh, began recruiting within the tribes. When Canucks were given the vote after the war, you had communists starting to organise with the prestige of the French resistance, uh, giving them wind to their sails, and the churches were absolutely horrified that communists would start organising the Canucks. So both the Protestant and Catholic churches set up associations to bring Canucks into political life as a way of keeping the communists out of the tribe. And so by 1953, a political party grew out of these Catholic and Protestant political associations called Union Caledonienne, the Caledonian Union. And it was one of the oldest political parties in the Pacific and continues to this day. And uh, so the, the UC party, which was a multiracial party, gained seats in the French National Assembly for many years and was the major political force in New Caledonia. UC today is one of the largest uh, parties still in the country and indeed a pro-independence party. Where does the FLNKS come into this? Well, UC was in some ways a very conservative party. It was certainly calling for greater autonomy from Paris, but it was not uh, a radical party. But by the 70s, the world was changing, obviously in Australia and America and France and so on. The, The late 60s, the early 70s were a time of international revolution, a time of international debate about the way the world works. And so... Within the churches, there was turmoil, everything from Vatican II to, to other features. And 
Around the world, there was a, a, a strong movement of indigenous peoples, of African peoples, of African Americans, and so on. Black is beautiful. The Negritude movement in the in the French uh, uh, French Africa, and so on. And many young Kanaks were swept up by this period. The first Kanaks were sent to university in the late 60s. Bad time to be sending people to France. Uh, 1968, the May 1968 riots, which united workers and students to try and overthrow Charles de Gaulle, the then president. The Vietnam War was inspiring a generation of youth across the world. So you had these influences and particularly the indigenous movement at that time in the early 70s inspired people in New Caledonia. The Aboriginal tent embassy in, uh, in 1972 was a great inspiration for people who started to protest, and uh, there was a group called Group 1878 established. 1878, Chief Atai's revolt was the symbol for them of resistance, and a whole series of groups set up with uh, many intellectuals and students returning from university in France, and saying, we have to overthrow the colonial order in New Caledonia, just as the National Liberation Front, the FLN uh, in French, Front de Libération Nationale, is overthrowing the American power in Vietnam. And so uh, a party was formed called Palika, the Party of Kanak Liberation, in 1976. At the same time, this threw out a challenge, this younger generation of student radicals and young people in the tribes was challenging their older, more conservative, churchy elders and saying, come on guys, you Union Caledonian, what are you doing? And Jean-Marie Chabau, a former Catholic seminarian, was part of this wave, saying we have to, you know, seize our own country, we have to take back our own country. And there was a renaissance of Kanak culture, identity, language learning and so on. And, you know, the black is beautiful notion was, was very strong. And in 1975, Chibau organized a festival called Melanesia 2000. And they got Kanak dancers, Kanak musicians, Kanak artists to come to Numea, the capital, from the tribes where they'd been placed during the colonial period, uh, the tribal reserves that are scattered all around the country. And there's this massive celebration, and it was a turning point, a really important turning point in the notion that there was a Kanak people from different language areas, from different places that had been divided up into tribal reserves, just as Aboriginal people, you know, different clans, different people from different country had been put into missions and reserves. Same thing happened in New Caledonia. But this notion that there was a Kanak people, not just a Kanak community, but a people, a nation in waiting, was really forged during the 1970s. And that happened within Union Caledonienne, uh, a young generation of Kanak leaders, Chibao, Yoweni Yoweni, a Catholic priest named François Bourque, Pierre de Clerc, a Frenchman but pro-independence, helped transform UC into a pro-independence party, and that happened in 1977. So it was a time of incredible ferment. Had different political forces coming together to say, we need to, to move towards independence. And by the 1980s? So 1981, these different forces created uh, the Front Independentiste, the Independence Front, which united a number of the parties, the more radical party Palika didn't join. They thought, oh, we don't follow the parliamentary road. These were revolutionaries at the time. And they won government in coalition with the centrist party in 1982. Uh, Chibao became uh, in, uh, in, the, in the local government, the local assembly. But that um, government was attacked by right-wing, extreme right-wing settlers. There was enormous resistance to the notion that the Kanaks should be involved in government, and the government collapsed. Then the Kanaks decided that they needed to not just 
use the parliamentary road, but use mass mobilisation. And so in September 1984, the FLNKS was born. The Front de Libération Nationale, Canac et Socialiste, FLNKS. So it's the Canac Socialist National Liberation Front. There'd been a National Liberation Front in Algeria, an FLN against the French rule. There'd been the FLN, the NLF, in Vietnam against French rule. This was the Canac Socialist National Liberation Front. And it united a number of different pro-independence political parties, UC, Union Caledonienne, Palika, two other smaller parties, as well as a trade union confederation, a pro-independence a trade union confederation formed in 1981. There was a small feminist group uh, called GFKEL, the group of Kanak and exploited women in struggle, gives you an idea of their politics. Uh, and, you know, you had Kanak leaders like Dewa Garode and uh, Susanna Une and others speaking out at uh, this time of political ferment, saying women have their place in the struggle alongside unions, alongside indigenous people. It was an incredibly creative time. And in 1984, the FLNKS decided to boycott elections that were being held at that time in France and in New Caledonia. And Elouan Marchereau, the Secretary General of uh, the FLNKS, uh, used an axe to smash a ballot box, symbolically launching a revolt, which went on for four years, a time of terrible torment and terrible uh, conflict. Uh, many people were killed, uh, real divisions between the indigenous population and some white supporters, some Wallisian supporters, and the people in the anti-independence movement who fought back against the Kanak uprising. The Wallisian community were drawn in as militias, right-wing militias to attack Kanaks. Um, I was there as a visitor on occasions, and it was a you know, time of real polarisation, real violence, real police repression, and indeed, ultimately, military repression. Um, after the police failed to put down the Kanak revolt, the French army was brought in, even though uh, you know, it's the ultimate uh, symbol that this was a war between nations rather than uh, a policing operation within one nation. <laughs> and it culminated in the Uvea massacre of 1988, where after an attempt by the Kanaks to take over a police station, hostages were taken and the French army was brought in, uh, leaving 19 Kanaks dead after the uh, military operation um, that occurred on the outlying island of Uvea. And that brought people back from the brink of civil war and uh, a series of peace agreements were signed. First the Matignon Accords of 1988 and then a decade later the Numir Accord of May 1998. And uh, the Numir Accord, rather than have a referendum on independence, which was the Kanak demand, it put off that referendum on independence for 20 years. So from May 1998, do the maths, it brings you to 2018. And so in November this year, uh, there will be a referendum, maybe a bit earlier, October, but probably November, there will be a referendum on self-determination where the uh, Kanak people and other supporters of independence will have a chance to determine a new political status for uh, this ongoing French colony. The Kanak people are less than 50, 50%, less than 40%. 40% and uh, some Kanaks don't support independence, a minority, the overwhelming majority of Kanaks do support independence and indeed they've run the two outlying provinces, the Northern Province, the Loyalty Islands Province since 1999, so FLNKS administrations have governed in two-thirds of the country um, since the Numir Accord, but the southern uh, 
province and particularly the capital Namir is where the European population lives overwhelmingly, where many Walesians live, and they uh, are a bastion of anti-independence support. There's been ongoing migration from France, not only the historic Caldoche, as they're called, the long-term settlers who've been there for many generations, but also more French more recent French migrants have come, uh, particularly since the 2008 economic crisis uh, in France. There's been a massive wave of migration. So the Canucks are a minority in their country, and they are trying to gain support from other people um, in other communities to say, you know, we can take the leap into the future. We can still maintain a relationship with uh, France, a partnership with France, but as a sovereign country. Uh, we have enormous resources, uh, you know, pretty good infrastructure by Pacific standards in terms of electricity, roads, hospitals and so on, and enormous wealth, mineral wealth, ocean wealth, um, World Heritage uh, listed reef for tourism and so on, and a quarter of the world's nickel reserves compared to many small island states like Tuvalu, Kiribati and so on. If, as an independent nation, uh, New Caledonia was to step, step up in the Pacific, it would be one of the largest uh, economies in the region after Papua New Guinea and after Fiji. Who gets to vote? There's been a, an ongoing battle that's still going on. The scandal is that the French state, even though the Namir Accord was signed nearly 20 years ago, has not re- resolved the debate about who can vote. The Canucks, way back in 1983 before they formed the FLNKS, made the historic decision that recognised that just not the indigenous population should determine the future of the country, that there were people who were descendants of the convicts brought to the, the, the land, certainly not as free people. There were descendants of indentured labourers who were brought virtually in chains to work in the nickel mines, and it wasn't their fault that they'd been brought to New Caledonia, or indeed the, the descendants of those people. And just as we had the debate about treaty within Australia, how do migrant populations respect the sovereignty of Indigenous people but live together, so the same debate has happened in New Caledonia. And in 1983, at a meeting in France at Nonville-les-Roches, the Independence Front, as it was at that time, said, we recognise the victims of history, a wonderful term that they use, the the descendants of the convicts, of the early settlers, of the indentured labourers who were brought to New Caledonia, often against their will, we believe that they're part of the community of the future. We have a common destiny, is the language used. We want them to respect our sovereignty. We want them to recognise us as the indigenous people, not just as another ethnic community, but as the first people of the land. But we open our arms to say... They have lived here for many generations. They're part of this country. We have to live together. We have to work together. The more recent French, however, don't get the vote. And that's been a battle. It's quite complex technically, but there are restrictions on who can vote. But it's still literally being played out as we speak. Um, They're hoping to resolve it at a meeting at the end of March in Paris, the final decision of who gets to vote. And the Canucks feel that there are many indigenous Canucks who can't vote, who are restricted from voting, some thousands of people because they're not registered for various reasons on the electoral roll, the French electoral roll for the French National Assembly. The French is that Senate deliberate? So they believe it is, yes. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest it is. And the French government has always had its own strategic interests. The rhetoric from, until just recently, the rhetoric from successive French governments, both Conservative and Socialist Party, has been we will accompany the people of New Caledonia towards their decision. The French state has no horse in this race. We will simply accompany you towards a referendum under the Namir Accord. 
But of course France has strategic interests in the region. We've talked about them on this program many times. And indeed, the, the game is up. Just uh, last week, uh, Manuel Valls, a former Prime Minister of France uh, under the Francois Hollande government, the Socialist Party government, led a parliamentary delegation to New Caledonia. It was supposed to be a listening exercise to uh, hear what the people of New Caledonia, supporters and opponents, were saying about the way forward and what should happen after the referendum, whatever the result. Instead, Valls gave a major speech saying, we want you to vote no. So much for neutrality, so much for the French state standing aside. And uh, just last month, uh, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, visited Corsica. Interesting history, Mediterranean island. There's been a strong Corsican independence movement and also many Corsicans who believe there should be greater autonomy from Paris, the centralised French state. In elections in January in Corsica, the uh, majority of the local assembly was governed by autonomists and independent supporters. The people who supported France lost out very badly in the elections. Macron went to Corsica and said, I'm sorry, we're not going to give you independence, we're not even going to give you greater autonomy. We're not going to recognise the Corsican language as a legitimate language. There is no Corsican people. There is only the French people with you of Corsican descent. But that went down well. Well, that went down really well. And the Canaks took notice because the Canaks say, we are the Canac people. We are an indigenous people, a nation in waiting. We're not just one other ethnic community alongside New Caledonia, which is a very polyglot you know, you've got descendants of Kabyles, of Javanese, of Walesians, of Tahitians, of people from different parts of France. The Canaks, they say, we're not just the Melanesian community in this multicultural society. We are the indigenous people. We are the first people. And we have the right to self-determination as recognised under international law. And just as Aboriginal and Islander people in Australia say the same thing, we recognise that Australia is a multicultural society with people from all over the world but we have sovereignty over the land, and we want you to recognise that. The treaty discussion in Australia parallels the sorts of discussions, but the Canucks are a minority, but they're a significant minority, 40%, and they hope to draw others. If they don't win the referendum, as is likely, um, there is a chance for two more referenda written into the Namir Accord um, that can be called by a third of the Congress. Um, so this process could play out up until 2022, but there's a lot of debate about what happens. My sense is that the reaction to Manuel Valls finally showing the French state's cards and saying, vote no, rather than we are neutral, uh, means that this is going to play out uh, there. And the Canucks are looking for international support. The Congress that was held for the FLNKS just recently has reached out for international support from the Melanesian Spearhead Group, countries like Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Fiji, that have been very very supportive over many years. And they're looking to Australia and New Zealand. Um, the FLNKS is about to appoint a representative uh, for overseas for Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific, who will be looking for support over the next uh, uh, few months in the lead-up to the referendum and for the political fallout that follows. They know, however, our government has sided with France. The Turnbull government has uh, bought French for the submarines, uh, the replacement of the Colin-class submarines for the Royal Australian Navy. Um, this government is not going to support an indigenous movement uh, 
in any substantial way. Rhetorically, the Australians say, oh, it's a matter for the uh, people of New Caledonia. But just like Manuel Valls, uh, we know which side uh, the bread's buttered on, and uh, it's pretty clear that Australia's going to stand aside. But other members of the Pacific Islands Forum, particularly the Melanesian Spearhead Group countries, are going to be very active over the next months. And uh, this is going to be a, a real issue on the regional agenda. And uh, because our media has not really reported on this for, for many, many years, it's time for uh, trade unions, for churches, for women's organisations, for political parties and others to, to start thinking about this and seeing how we can support our neighbours, one of the closest countries to Australia. Just finally, Nick, could this result, whichever way it goes, have repercussions right throughout the struggles of other peoples? Absolutely. I mean, the FLNKS at their um, uh, Congress uh, just a a month ago uh, passed resolutions in support of the right to self-determination for peoples in Europe, the Catalans, the Corsicans. They also supported the Maui people of French Polynesia and, uh, indeed, the people of West Papua. The FLNKS is a full member of the Melanesian Spearhead Group and has been very actively supporting the West Papuan struggle. So I think, um, as we've talked about on the program before, this issue of self-determination is coming back to the regional agenda in the next few years. Whatever happens with the referendum result, this issue will burble on in New Caledonia. Bougainville, too, is moving towards a decision on its political status. There's supposed to be a referendum, um, even though the PNG government is very... uh, are wary of this, and indeed the PNG Parliament has the right to rule. Bougainvillians may vote yes for independence, but the PNG Parliament uh, has to make the decision on that, and it seems that they are going to say no, even if Bougainvillians vote yes. This is a recipe for some trouble. And, of course, the West Papuan struggle is uh, is increasing uh, in tenor, uh, both with the United Liberation Movement of West Papua, the, the exiled leadership, but also action on the ground with the KNPB, with the Federal Republic Forces and with a whole range of church, uh, indigenous uh, women's organisations and others struggling within West Papua. Uh, Once again, a minority um, given settlement and migration. The parallels are uh, the same across the region. The balance of forces are not great for all these struggles, but these are people who are not giving up, just as um, the ultimate minority population, Aboriginal and Islander Australians, are not giving up the issue of sovereignty is a central issue for our time and it's happening in Europe, uh, in Scotland, in Catalonia, in Corsica, in other places. The, the national question, as, uh, as Marxists used to talk about, is, is still on the books. For our region, self-determination is an issue that is of vital importance. And it's Nick McClellan, journalist, researcher, you name it, expert on the Pacific, talking about New Caledonia. 436 on 3CR. Listeners, do not forget 3CR. International Women's Day, Thursday the 8th of March. Talk Back With Attitude, 10 till 11. An all-women's affair for the day. So call in on 94190155 we would love to have some attitude from all the women out there and wish them all a happy International Women's Day I'm speaking now with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association and as you wrote in your newsletter Kate there is good news 
sad news and bad news. So let's have the glass half full, two areas we've been covering for a while now. The good news is two different court decisions in favour of the Sahrawi right to their own resources. And the first ruling came from the High Court of South Africa regarding the shipment of phosphate which was impounded in Port Elizabeth on the 1st of May last year. So it's been sitting there for all these months in the port. And finally the High Court has ruled that it belongs to the people of Western Sahara through their representative, the Polisario Front and the Sahrawi Republic. They added that the phosphate had never belonged to the Moroccan company and that it had no right to sell it to the New Zealand importer, Balance Agri-Nutrients. This means that the Sahrawis have won that case which is a resounding victory for them. And also the fact of how much it's cost, whoever, for that ship to be sitting in Goodness South me, Africa yes. since May last year. Exactly, because uh, some people say it's $10,000 a day. Well, top that up, it's probably worth, uh, almost the value of the cargo. But, um, but yes, we'll see how that all unravels eventually because... Uh, I don't, haven't heard if there is a buyer yet for the phosphate. How are they going to get it out of the port? Because Sahara, we aren't independent, so who are they relying on to get that ship out of there? I'm not sure about any of those details. If you ask the representative in Sydney, uh, Kamal Fadel, he might be able to tell you. But, uh, the, I mean, ideally it, it should be returned to Western Sahara where it came from, the phosphate. But since that's under occupation, the decision will be to sell it from, from South Africa. And the buyer will presumably take it on board the ship since it's a bulk carrier. You can't... Take it off in a teaspoon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can, and it's not in sacks or bags or, or anything like that, or containers. So it's really got to stay with the ship and get taken to whoever buys it. And the implications widely from that decision? Oh, well, yes. I mean, it, it has sent a sort of shockwave through the shipping industry apart from the phosphate fertiliser industry. One of the shipping companies which used to come to occasionally to Western Sahara has now announced that it will not undertake any contracts coming out of the port of El Ayun in Western Sahara company called Golden Ocean and it's a Bermuda based company so we expect that other shipping companies will also be writing some kind of clause like that into their future contracts. And not just the shipping companies but the countries who are receiving the phosphate we've got Australia in there We've got Australia in there and they haven't made any announcements yet but we believe there's a bit of ripple on effect for them because they have actually not had any imports since December 2016. For over a year they haven't been receiving any phosphate from Western Sahara and they seem to have been making do quite well uh, with other sources. 
so we are hoping that they will soon announce that uh, they are giving up this trade. The two biggest importers from Canada have amalgamated into a new company called Nutrien, and the former Agrium, based in Vancouver, has announced that it will stop imports uh, at the end of 2018. Perhaps that's the end of their contract or the, they've given the appropriate period of notice. The other part of the company that amalgamated with, called Potash Corp has its phosphate processing done in America at Baton Rouge. We're waiting to hear, but they did announce that they are also considering their position and, and hoping to end their contracts with Western Sahara. At that point, it leaves only the two New Zealand companies as kind of renegade importers. They're still defending their position and going on importing, but we feel that now it is only a matter of time before they find an alternative to the uh, phosphate from, from Bukra mine in Western Sahara. And we have to remind people that it's a finite product, isn't it? Well, that's it. It's been a very large reserve, but they have already apparently skimmed off the best quality phosphate and they are down to the next layer. So all of that phosphate is natural resources which, and, and, wealth, and natural wealth that should belong to the Sahrawi people. And when you're talking about the national resources of um, Western Sahara, another court decision this time in Europe? Yes, that was a very interesting conclusion to a process that was started in the UK by Western Sahara Campaign UK, a uh, very small solidarity group with Western Sahara, which nevertheless managed to bring this case to the British court concerning the import of goods under the uh, European Union agreement in uh, agricultural and fishing products. Uh, The agricultural products included tomatoes grown under glass in southern part of Western Sahara near Dakhla. Uh, And a couple of uh, Scottish trawlers were taking part in the fishing The British court decided that it needed advice from the European Court of Justice and so that's what has been happening and finally the uh, European Court uh, made its ruling uh, very dramatically on the Sahrawi National Day, the 27th of February. They were meeting early in the day in Europe, in uh, Luxembourg, and here in Melbourne, we were getting excited emails from people uh, attending that hearing at our dinner to um, uh, mark the National Day here in Melbourne. The result was that the court declared that Western Sahara is not part of Morocco and any trade agreement with Morocco cannot include goods from Western Sahara and that includes the oceans off the coast of Western Sahara which had not perhaps been specified quite so clearly in the earlier agricultural 
agreement in the earlier ruling about that. So this is very important. Already Morocco is making a fuss about it. How are they going to police it? That's a big uh, interesting question. I believe it will need to be enforced because there's really no incentive for anybody to have an agree- a fishing agreement with, particularly the fishing, to have a fishing agreement with Morocco that doesn't include the waters of Western Sahara because 91, over 91% of the fish that was caught under the old European Union ag- agreement with uh, Morocco was uh, from the, those coastal waters of Western Sahara. That's why the Moroccans have summoned all their hubris and they've said that they do not recognize this uh, ruling and they will not engage in any agreement that challenges the sovereignty of Morocco. They claim sovereignty over Western Sahara, even though nobody else acknowledges it. Where does it go from here? Well, exactly. It's uh, it's a kind of interesting, very interesting development that is currently playing out in Brussels. During the last couple of days, I've had a message from a Sahrawi whose organisation was called to do consultations, and in their press release. They have explained why they've refused to take part in the consultations uh, invited by the European Commission. First of all, there was a lot of messing around. First it was going to be in Rabat on the 2nd of February, then it was put off, then it was going to be somewhere else, and then finally they've been invited to come to Brussels in about a week's time, I think, and... Then they, they were complaining that it was a, not a transparent process at all. Then they saw the list of organisations that were being consulted and they complained that all of them were ones that are really Moroccan organisations based in occupied Western Sahara. They haven't sought the actual consent even for this process of negotiation uh, from the body that needs to represent the Sahrawi people, the Polisario Front. They have now included them as one of the so-called stakeholders, but without, of course, acknowledging that they are the, the crucial stakeholder. And for all these reasons, especially the kind of weasel words that have worked their way into the terminology where they talk about the population of Western Sahara and not the people of Western Sahara or the Sahrawi people. Point being that the population of current Western Sahara includes a very large number of Moroccan settlers, whereas the Sahrawi people are divided in half, only if some of them live under Moroccan occupation, and the other half live in Sahari refugee camps and they have an equal right in determining the future of their resources. And I would imagine that the Moroccan authorities wouldn't have been too concerned about depleting the seas of fish from the Sahrawi coast? 
fishing in principle is a renewable resource compared with a deposit in the earth like the phosphate that yes. was laid down millions of years ago. But there's more and more places around the seas where fishing is being depleted. That's right. Uh, it is in principle a renewable resource, but you have to fish sustainably and you have to uh, respect the, uh, the, um, the natural process of renewal. And it is very easy to overfish because people are greedy and they, we all like fish. A lot of people have been advised to eat fish for their health and the appetite for fish seems to be only growing. And so the uh, world's fisheries are all under huge pressure. However, properly managed, it could be a renewable resource. And sometimes in the past there have been periods of what they call, I think they call ecological rest or something like that, where it is forbidden to uh, fish during those periods. And it's especially important on the coast of Western Sahara because one of the reasons there's so many fish there is that it's a breeding ground and there aren't so very many of those that are, have the right conditions where there is warm coastal waters uh, meeting cooler currents and that boundary, that eco-boundary, that's, those are the areas that are always the most fertile and rich and that's why it's such a good fishing ground. But the uh, reproduction has to happen for there to be fish to take in the future, yes. But the, the European are also only one of the parties that are fishing there. There are also uh, Japanese, there's Chinese, there's Korean, there's Russian trawlers all in this uh, same stretch of water. Some of them are very big factory ships that are further out to sea. But, uh, yes, there's, there's a, a very great deal of fishing taking place in that area. So if this ruling by the European Court goes through, that will impact on those other countries fishing in the area as well? It should do, yes, exactly, because if, it, if it's uh, been declared that the fishing needs the consent of the Sahadawi people, they too will not be able to make any agreements with Morocco, but will need to go to the Sahrawis. And the Sahrawis have already announced that they are open for business and they were happy to enter into negotiations with anyone who wants to do trade in their resources. So there's a lot at stake, isn't there? There, there is. It's a really interesting turning point in the whole conflict, yes. The sad news, Kate, the death of one of the protesters or the, one of the leaders of the protest camp at... Gedeme Yes, that's right. A, a guy called Mohammed Ayubi. I can't remember where I can find his actual age, but I should say he's not one of the younger ones, he's one of the older ones, probably in his uh, mid to late 50s. And he was very, very severely tortured. Quite why they picked on him, I don't know. But throughout his period of detention, which started in uh, 
November 2010. He's been very badly tortured. His shoulder became permanently dislocated through the torture and uh, various conditions, medical conditions such as diabetes were exacerbated. As part of the torture, the Moroccans often withhold medication from people who need it, like diabetics. So that may be part of the story. But even they recognized what they'd done to him, and he was hospitalized for three months. Usually they take them to hospital just to sort of... Patch them up. Patch them up, yeah, and, and to make it look good, and then bring them out when they haven't really been properly looked after at all but three months does suggest that they had that they acknowledged that they had really mistreated this poor man I believe that eventually he was allowed to return to El Ayun his hometown and so probably his relatives were able to see him towards the very end of his life but uh, the Human rights organizations are calling for a proper investigation into the causes of his death. And um, the Australia Western Sahara Association wants to associate itself with them and add its voice calling for an investigation under the Treaty on Prohibition on, on um, Torture and Cruel and, and Inhuman Treatment, which Morocco is a party to. It's actually required that if there's any claim of torture, it must be properly investigated. It doesn't always happen in Morocco, though, so we believe a, a bit of pressure is needed, and we're particularly going to appeal to Australia, which has now got a seat on the human, United Nations Human Rights Council to add its voice and try and get support from the Human Rights Council uh, for this investigation. And, of course, as you just said then, he's only one of many. Oh, of course. Uh, he was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment. Others have been sentenced to longer periods, 25, 30 years, or even life. Quite a few of them have been given life sentences. One of the other 20... Yeah, sentence people. Enama Asfari has announced a hunger strike until they investigate the, the death of Ayubi. So uh, he's, um, people are now concerned about his condition. Yeah. And that wouldn't be the first hunger strike? Absolutely not. No, they, they, this is the, really the only weapon they have, the only way that they can make any deep feelings made known, uh, make them really known. and uh, But then they're open to force feeding. They're open to force feeding, and of course it takes a huge toll. Even if they survive something like 30 or 40 days of hunger strike, they live with the consequences for the rest of their lives. And Aminatou Haidar, for example, is in really very delicate health now because of the combined effects of the treatment she had in prison and the hunger strike that she's undertaken. And in these situations it's increasingly difficult to get people into the occupied territories to find out what actually is happening. Indeed, they, they really closed the 
boundary, the frontier. And it's one thing for them to refuse journalists or parties of human rights observers from just going and having a look and interviewing people. But it's another thing altogether to refuse the lawyers of the prisoners the right to meet with their clients. And that's what happened at the beginning of this month. Two French lawyers uh, were turned back and not allowed to enter the country. And that's bad under any circumstances, but France has actually got a special agreement with Morocco on legal matters, and so it's a violation of that special arrangement as well. Um, and what does France do about that? Uh, France, unfortunately, is a very big friend of Morocco, and to all the attempts to get them to act have fallen on deaf ears, unfortunately. But uh, one hopes that the uh, CEO of Balance Agri-Nutrients might listen because he went to the occupied territory. He was taken and fated as a very welcome guest and shown what was the phosphate company was doing and appears to have been completely convinced that they were doing a really good job and supporting local schools and health centres and that all the money that they were giving to the industry was being returned to the local population. So uh, uh, it's a pity that he wasn't able to see what is actually happening to the Sahrawis and especially any Sahrawis who ever express the wish for independence. I'll just go back to what I said at the beginning, though. It's a, a glass half full this month. It is, and uh, the, the good news is it's uh, certainly a very big breakthrough, and uh, despite the, the sad news and the bad news, there's um, a lot of hope that a kind of watershed may have been reached with this, these rulings from the courts. Thanks, Kate. Good. And the struggle goes on for the people of Western Sahara, and that was Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And everything can change. When Brother Peter Bray was inaugurated to the position of the 8th Vice-Chancellor at Bethlehem University in 2009, the Chair of the Board of Trustees said, and I quote, The notion of leaving your country for a new life in Bethlehem in unfamiliar surroundings and a land of ongoing disputes must have been a bit scary, unquote. Peter, during your career, you've been a, a teacher and educator in many countries, including the Philippines, Turkey, England, Ireland, Australia and the US. Were you prepared for what you've described as the most difficult job you've ever had? Well, uh, I was under the illusion I was. 
but the reality uh, in looking back you know this is my 10th year there now I was just so naive and so out of touch and I you know acknowledged even now I'm under no illusion that I have a good grasp on what's going on I'm resigned to the fact that the day I leave I'll still be learning and I'm not sure what I could have done to prepare myself better I I was very fortunate that I walked into a situation where there were people who were eager to help me and to help me settle in and to understand and I've got some great people around me but the the situation I walked into was difficult because my predecessor had been appointed in 2006 and then at the beginning of 2007 had been diagnosed with cancer and right through 2007 had been getting treatment at Adassa Hospital in, in Jerusalem and then at the beginning of 2008 he went back to New York to get treatment there on the understanding he'd come back but when he got back there they found it was terminal and he never came back so right through 2007 he was not well and 2008 he wasn't there and the vice president for academics was the sort of interim vice chancellor as well so it was difficult moving into a situation where I really had no vice chancellor to talk to about the position. Yeah, I, I suppose uh, looking back, no, I wasn't prepared for it. <laughs> what did you know about the situation? Now, you, you, I'm quite sure you, like most thinking well, people, knew what yeah, was happening there. I'd have to admit that uh, I had no idea. Uh, fortunately, I was on a uh, pilgrimage to uh, the Middle East in 2007 and we had organised to uh, have Christmas Day at Bethlehem in the community with the brothers. That was my first uh, introduction to uh, Bethlehem University and I can remember after lunch, Brother Jack took us for a, a wander around the campus and he took us up onto uh, the top of the amphitheatre that we have and pointing out the settlements. And I can remember standing there thinking, you know, this wasn't what I expected Bethlehem University to be because I'd not seen any photographs of it. And But I'd heard about the difficulty they had with finance. And so I was sort of expecting sort of army huts and things like this and these, these beautiful stone buildings. And I can remember standing there thinking, you know, this is not what I expected Bethlehem University to be. And I probably will never see this place again. So that was December 2007. And then in May 2008, I was invited to go there. Just describe that location in a bit more detail about where the university is and what size area that you have. The universities are really on the highest point in Bethlehem. And for some reason, I can't understand why. It must have been when I was a child. I had the impression that uh, Bethlehem was on flat area. Well, it's far from flat. You know, there's hills everywhere and we're on the top of the highest one. So we looked down onto the wall and onto uh, two refugee camps uh, and then we look across the wall into Jerusalem. So we'd be probably in a straight line 400 metres from the, from the wall and then in the other direction we would be, it's about a seven or eight minute walk from our place down to Manger Square and the Church of the Nativity. So we're sort of in the middle of Bethlehem. Our property uh, is not big. It's probably five, six acres, I suppose. I should check that out. As a result of that, uh, we decided back in 2012 to purchase an abandoned hospital, which is about five or six minutes' walk from the present campus. And we're in the process of turning that into a teaching hotel and a teaching restaurant. Talk about how that wall has impacted on you and your students. 
Yeah, I arrived there at the end of 2008. The war went through uh, between Bethlehem and Jerusalem in 2005. Talking to older people, people who have been there a lot longer, like the Palestinians, for example, they talk about their markets on a Saturday, that there used to be large numbers of Israelis would come through to Bethlehem to the markets. Now, when the war went through, uh, went in, it's now illegal for uh, Israeli citizens to come into the West Bank. You know, there's all that contact that is lost with the Israelis. And for, I'd say, most of our students from Palestine, from the West Bank, the only Israelis they see or have anything to do with are the soldiers at the checkpoint who abuse them. So it, it, it impacts on the way they think about Israelis because they don't engage with them other than in that uh, context. The ones from from East Jerusalem, about 46% of our students are now from East Jerusalem. So they have more contact, but they come through the wall twice a day. So they're engaged with uh, soldiers at the checkpoint as well. So the wall has uh, restricted us significantly. For example, before the wall went in, we had students from uh, Ramallah and from north of Jerusalem. And now, like uh, one of the students I was talking to says it, it has to come through two checkpoints to come from Ramallah to Bethlehem. And because I can go through Jerusalem, uh, I've driven to Ramallah in about 26 minutes. It takes him over an hour and a half, sometimes two hours to come. So it's not practical for students to come on a daily basis. So his parents have rented an apartment in Bethlehem and he's staying there and coming to Bethlehem University. So, yeah, it, it's restricted them in all sorts of uh, ways. And, um, you know, in terms of their movement, and then you put the, uh, the wall together with the checkpoints. And the checkpoints are not, are not just uh, between uh, Israel and Palestine. The checkpoints are right throughout Palestine. So even when they go to Ramallah, which is, you know, you don't go anywhere near Jerusalem, but there are checkpoints that they have to go through there. And I'd imagine there are times when the students don't even get through. Yeah, well, I, was, I gave a presentation last night and I was saying that one of the things I'm most concerned about is the unpredictability of our students' lives. Like, as I mentioned, we have 46% of our students coming from East Jerusalem now. And when they get on the bus in the morning, to come, and most of them come by bus, when they get on the bus in the morning in Jerusalem, they don't know whether they're going to get to class on time. They don't know whether their bus is going to be stopped once or twice or even three times by different groups of Israeli soldiers. You know, they don't know whether they're going to be interrogated. They don't know whether they're going to be arrested. They don't know whether they're going to have a gun put in their face. You know, the, and it's that unpredictability that leads to, I think, an underlying insecurity within them. Uh, you know, Anthony Gittens, who is a sociologist, talks about the apparently insignificant rituals that are part of uh, young people's lives have a great influence on their, their psychological security. And he talks about... Well, you know, there, there are things like when a child gets up in the morning, they know where the wheat bricks are, they know where the milk is. You know, these seemingly or apparently insignificant things have a huge impact on their psychological security. And I look at our students and think they're not worried about where the wheat bricks are or where the milk is. They're wondering whether they're going to be arrested or whether they're going to have a gun put in their face. And, and so for me, this is a a major issue that we uh, need to face. And, and so my question is, what can Bethlehem University do to address that? And uh, I think there are three things that we are doing. The first is 
when they walk onto our campus, I want them to know that they are safe, that nobody at Bethlehem University campus is going to put a gun in their face. Nobody's going to arrest them. Nobody's going to interrogate them on campus. It's a safe place for them. The second thing is uh, I want them to know that the people that they're engaging with there at Bethlehem University are, are really caring about them. And, uh, you know, we're at La Salian University, so we're in the footsteps of Jean-Baptiste de La Salle, who emphasizes the importance of building relationships. And uh, so I talk about the, the faculty and staff being brothers and sisters to one another and older brothers and sisters to the young people entrusted to them. And so when a student step onto campus, I want them to know these adults that are there are really looking out for them, are, you know, their older brothers and sisters. And then the third thing is I want them to know that they're walking into a predictable environment. By that I mean that when they walk onto campus, they're not wondering, they're not uncertain about what's going to happen. There are classes at certain times, there are expectations of their own classes, there are assignments they have to do, there are exams they have to sit, all those sorts of things. So, you know, a, a safe, a caring and a predictable environment. And I'm, I'm hoping that as a result of that, you know, they have peaceful minds, peaceful hearts and become peaceful people. Uh, so what we're trying to do is create an oasis of peace there. And, you know, as I said last night to the group, uh, I think in all due humility that we're do doing a really good job at that. And if I can just tell a little story, back in uh, the second or third week, I think it was, of this academic year back in September, I was walking from my office back over to the brother's house and I saw three young women uh, sitting uh, in the pergola that I walked past. So I went over and I was talking to them for a while, and then I asked them, you know, you know how's the first few weeks of uh, the semester gone? And they sort of stepped back and said, oh, brother, we are graduates. And it turns out they're graduates of the Faculty of Education who are teaching in primary schools around Bethlehem. But they just wanted to come back and sit at Bethlehem University because they remembered how peaceful it was. So I think, you know, from their experience and from others, you know, we have created uh, a peaceful environment there. And I think that, um, you know, that's having a, a, an impact on uh, enabling students to deal with that unpredictability that was just part of their life. Regardless of that, though, your university has been closed down. I've read 12, 12 times, times and yeah, once right. for three years. Uh -huh. Does that mean that the military actually come into your university? That was prior to uh, 1993 when the Oslo Agreement was signed. Uh, prior to that, yeah, but, and then in 2002 they invaded the whole of Bethlehem and closed Bethlehem University down at that stage as well. Yeah, the, uh, the military came on campus and... Um, and closes, and then in 2002 they brought their uh, tanks onto the basketball court and ripped up the basketball court as a result. You know, the people, the brothers who were there talk about the experience of having them on campus. In 2002, for example, the brothers were confined under house arrest in the brothers' house, and Brother Joe, who was director of the community, opened the door, uh, the outside door at one stage, and there was a soldier out in the gardens, and he just opened fire, and that we still have left the bullet holes in the, in the ceiling of the uh, entrance. But fortunately, Brother Joe wasn't hurt, but it smashed all the window and the door and uh, damaged the painting inside. So that's the reality. But since in the, in the almost 10 years I've been there, we have not had any involvement with the Israeli military at all on campus. They haven't come near us. See, after Oslo, Palestine was divided into Area A, Area B, and Area C. And 
Area A was theoretically under, com- completely under the control of the Palestinian Authority. Area B was supposed to be shared and Area C completely under the control of the military, uh, Israeli military. And we're in Area A, so theoretically they're not supposed to come anywhere near Bethlehem, but, you know, they come in and arrest people when they want to, and, but they've not been at, the, at Bethlehem University. You spoke about the sometimes trauma of the children getting to school or the young young adults I suppose they are the parents must be torn between wanting students to be educated because that's a very important thing for Palestinians and yet worried about their safety on the other side they would feel that they are safer at Bethlehem University than anywhere else I mean getting the issue is getting there yeah that's just part of life there I suppose and uh, you know one of the things that continually amazes me is the resilience of uh, the students and their parents and I think that uh, you know one of the other things that really surprises me is the restraint of the Palestinians you know unfortunately the narrative that is out there around the world and I find it in the States and England and Europe and here in Australia and New Zealand you know the dominant narrative is the Israeli one and you have to admire the incredible efficiency of the Israeli propaganda machine but when you look at the truth, uh, and the truth is very different to that. And uh, one of the things that uh, continually annoys me is, um, and this is particularly in the States, the equation that is made, if I'm talking about Palestinians, the equation that's often made is that I'm obviously talking about terrorists. And then I show them a photo of our students. I say, these are the terrorists I'm dealing with each day, you know, ordinary young people wanting an education. And when I look at the way they are treated, the way their parents are treated, I'm really surprised that they are so restrained. I would expect, given the way they're treated, that there would be a lot more violence, a lot more resistance uh, in in a physical way to what is happening. And they're so restrained and so resilient and so courageous. Yeah, I just admire them, I must say. Talk more about the students. You started off very small back in 1973. You now have over 3,000 students. Are they all at the university or some online? Well, we started with 112 in 1973 and we're up to 3,200 at present. No, they're all on campus. Unfortunately, at this stage, uh, the Palestinian Authority Ministry of Higher Education does not recognise online learning or distance learning. So they only recognise face-to-face learning. So, yeah, they're all on campus. So when they're all there, it's very tight, and that's why we purchased this uh, abandoned hospital a few years back. Because, see, what's happening is uh, Bethlehem is being surrounded by uh, Israeli settlements. Bethlehem is going to continue to grow. It's a limited time that they're going to be able to grow outward, as it were. So what's going to happen is that they're going to grow inwards and that the spare land that's around or the price of property is going to rise significantly. And this abandoned hospital, which is about a third of the size of our present campus, was really the only suitable property uh, relatively close to the campus that we had. Talk about the students, where they come from. You've mentioned that a little, and what they're studying. As I said, 46% of our students come from East Jerusalem, and then uh, the biggest next group is from Bethlehem, and then from Hebron, and this, uh, the villages between Hebron and, uh, and Bethlehem and around that area. We have some, a very limited number, who come from Ramallah and stay in Bethlehem, but uh, that's really, we're very limited in the, um, 
the area that we can uh, draw from because of the restrictions on movement that they have. Now, in terms of uh, what they study, we're the smallest university in Palestine, so we have only five faculties, business, education, science, uh, nursing and arts, and then we have an institute of hotel management and tourism. And the ex-students, you keep touch with them? That's one of the unfortunate things. It's since I've been here, probably six, seven years back, uh, we started up an alumni office. Prior to that, uh, there was no alumni office at all. And, you know, Brother Neil, who's been there 28 years now, when he was um, vice president for academics, he mentions that in the time that he was vice president, which was probably nine or ten years, there was only one semester in all of that time where they did what they planned. You know, like there was interruptions, the university was closed, there were all sorts of things going on. And so the focus was to get through the semester and then to get through the second semester, to finish the academic year. And once that was finished, they focused on the next one. And his comment was they really didn't have time to keep track of students who had graduated. We have about 17,000 graduates now and we would be in touch with possibly 4,000 of those. And then the other thing is uh, many of our students, you know, many of those get married either while they're at university or shortly afterwards and their names change. And so it's, it's really quite difficult and the, the person who's in charge of the alumni is having, you know, significant difficulty uh, trying to track them. Now we're using social media and trying to get on Facebook and things like that, trying to get in touch, but it's an uphill battle really. And then the other thing is, there has been an exodus of, uh, of students and of graduates, particularly Christians uh, from uh, Palestine, and, and so trying to keep track of them outside the country is a, is a challenge. You're listening to Brother Peter Bray, who since 2009 has been the Vice-Chancellor at Bethlehem University in Palestine. And of course most of your students would have had and have limited life experience, not permitted to travel very far? Yeah, that's true. I told the story last night about Wasim, who was a young man, 22-year-old from Hebron. We have a group of students, uh, which we call ambassadors of Bethlehem University, who probably five, six of those meet every pilgrim group that come. A couple of years ago, he was with a group from England and happened to mention that he'd never set eyes on the sea and they were a bit taken aback by that. And then he went on to say that uh, he can stand on the steps of Bethlehem Hall, which is our nursing facility, and he can look over the wall into Jerusalem, but he'd never been allowed to go there. So his whole 22 years had been locked into this little area of Bethlehem and Hebron. Uh, And unfortunately, he's not uh, unique. You know, there are many students uh, in that position. So one of the things we have been doing for probably six, seven years now is trying to arrange internships. There's a group uh, on the west coast of the United States who is funding about 12, I think 10 or 12 students each year to go to the States for the summer. And for many of those, it's the first time they've been outside Palestine. So it's, you know, where we've set that up. In fact, we have three, of, I think it's three or four of our students over the last three years have uh, come here to to Melbourne to Loyola College and have you know from the Faculty of Education and have been working at Loyola and that's that's been a wonderful experience for them so that's that's something that we're trying to do and the unfortunate thing is we can't have 
foreign students enrolled with us because they can only get a three-month visa, and that's shorter than a, a semester. So, so, yeah, it's a very homogeneous group of students. Their, their, their life experience is limited. What about the staff? Well, we're facing the same thing. We aren't able to employ international faculty because likewise they can only get a three-month visa. We have some special arrangements like Fulbright scholars can come for a year uh, and we have one uh, with us at present. But uh, yeah, and that's one of our challenges. One of our biggest challenges is to get qualified faculty because in effect they have to be Palestinian. And you know, I think there's about 17 universities in Palestine, and you know, there's a small pool of people, Palestinians, who are available to teach in those. And so yeah, it's it's an uphill battle. We've been very fortunate uh, over the last four years. We've been able to entice two Palestinians to come back. One who had been at Stetson University in Florida for 14 years, and he came back as our Dean of Research. And in the following year, we had one from California who'd been there for seven years, came back as our registrar. So, you know, to get opportunities like that is just a godsend, really. And I'd imagine, too, that these teachers and educators have to be sort of a bit like a psychologist as well because they, they, yeah. they, they, they most of your students... Of, done a lot of interviews about Palestine would be suffering from post-traumatic stress? Probably although you know I I just feel that their resilience and uh, they're just their courage like I was talking I, I had an interview with one and I showed a couple of her clips uh, last night and she was talking in the course of the uh, interview about the restrictions that she has to face and her brother is in jail, has been for 14 years. So uh, one of the uh, aspects of collective uh, punishment that the Israelis impose is that nobody in her family can get permission to go into Jerusalem. So she hasn't been outside. Uh, but she talks about these restrictions, and, and she says, brother, they're not inside me. They're not eating away at me. You know, they're there. And she says, I'm a 20-year-old girl. I want to do what I want to do. And, and so the restriction's there, but I'm going to live uh, my life despite those you know that, that that's the reality but i'm going to live as fully as i can within those restrictions and i'm i wouldn't be inclined to say that she's suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress and there are so many of them that are just so resilient and um you know i'm not saying it hasn't had an impact on them but uh i just admire them and just inspired by them i'd have to say talk a bit more about the encirclement by the settlements and what connection at all you have with those settlements? Well, okay. Well, personally, I don't have any any connection whatsoever with the settlements or the people in the settlements because, see, they have Israeli-only roads that uh, lead them into uh, Jerusalem. And there are checkpoints on those that prevent uh, the Palestinian in using those roads. What is happening, you know, we have two big settlements uh, near us, Gilo and Hahoma. And both of them are expanding significantly. And then uh, to the south of us and to the southeast of us, there are other settlements which are expanding. Now, one of the things that's beginning to happen uh, is that uh, Gilo and uh, Hahoma are expanding in such a way that, you know, within a relatively short time, they're going to join up and cut Bethlehem off from uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Bethlehem is a suburb of Jerusalem, and it's only about uh, six or seven kilometres away. I've walked it a number of times. 
uh, and yet we're being cut off from that, and uh, economically as well. And because Israel controls the economy in Palestine, and the settlements are restricting uh, the way in which the towns in Palestine can engage with one another, it's making it even more and more difficult. And I think that uh, you know the two-state solution, where uh, you know what is left of Palestine, it's less than about 8.7 percent of what they originally. You know, 1946, Palestinians had 90 percent of that land, and then through the division by the United Nations, and then the Nakba in 48, the invasion by the Israelis, and then in 1967, the Six-Day War, when they took over the rest of Palestine, and now Palestine is left with about 8.7 percent of their land you know and, and that's being eroded away particularly in east jerusalem there's a, a systematic move to push palestinians out of uh, of east jerusalem and so yeah the settlements are a major problem and i think in the course of the time that president trump's been in the expansion of uh, the settlements has has just increased significantly talk about that encirclement of bethlehem and the hemming in of the people, how does it affect their ability to get services, get goods, tourism? See, for tourists to come into uh, Bethlehem, they have to come through the wall. So there's that restriction. Then the unfortunate thing is that uh, many of the uh, pilgrims that come are under the control of Israeli tour guides. So what generally happens is that they come into the Church of the Nativity for 20 minutes, half an hour, and get on the bus again and go back out into Israel. So, in, in effect, the Palestinians don't benefit at all from their visit to Bethlehem. And then the other thing was, uh, last year, the uh, hotels in Bethlehem were much cheaper than the hotels in Israel. And so a number of tour guide operators were using Bethlehem hotels, which was a small advantage the Palestinian hoteliers had. And then the Ministry of Tourism in Israel had a meeting with tour operators and said if they continued to do that, then they would lose the subsidy they get from the Israeli government. So, you know, the small little advantage the uh, Palestinians had with their hotels was just taken away like that. In terms of uh, the encirclement, you know, it's going to make it more difficult for uh, people in the south to come to uh, Bethlehem and to provide goods. See, a lot of the goods uh, like uh, fruit and vegetables that are grown, say, in Jericho and down around Hebron, they have to come to Jerusalem. And, you know, if there are settlements that they have to come through, it's going to make it more difficult as, as those expand. Does the proximity to Jerusalem mean that there's additional problems regarding security for the people in Bethlehem? Not regarding security. I suppose uh, the the issue is the ability to be able to go into Jerusalem. Uh, See, one of our problems, for example, is that we have a a course in what we call religious studies where students study Islam, Christianity and Judaism in the Holy Land where, you know, it sort of all began, as it were. And what is so frustrating is that uh, we can't take our Christian students from Palestine into the Holy Sepulchre. We can't take our Muslim students to the Alaska Mosque, for example. We can't take our Christian students up to the Galilee. 
because of the restrictions on movement and that impacts on the way in which we can teach those you know it would be much better to be able to go to the holy sepulchre or to go to alaska mosque and talk about uh you know what the mosque is there in the, in the presence of it so yeah it does impact on us uh, in a significant way well, for security, say for the 46% that are coming from Jerusalem, often if there's an issue in Jerusalem, the buses uh, may be stopped a lot more frequently and, and searched and things like that. So that impacts on them, yeah. And what happens if the U.S. Embassy does go to Jerusalem? Yeah, well, uh, I don't know really. I did an interview yesterday and the guy was telling, uh, saying to me that you know, you just have to accept facts, really. You know, the, the thing is that uh, Israel has its parliament in Jerusalem, says all its ministries in Jerusalem. You just got to accept the fact that, you know, this is, uh, you know, and in, in international law really is out of date with it. And my uh, reflection is that what uh, President Trump has done by moving the embassy uh, to Jerusalem is saying that we don't really have to worry about international law. And if we don't have to worry about international law, then we're really back to anarchy or, you know, that might is right. You know, and I use the analogy that, you know, if somebody, uh, if you're watching TV at night, for example, and somebody knocks on the door and you go to answer it and, and three big burly guys burst into your house and then take over the front room and you complain to the police and uh, they stay there and you complain to the police again and they stay there and then you go to the mayor and complain to him and he said, oh, look, you know, that's just how it is. You know, it's uh, part of the reality you've got to face. I think people would be really, really upset if that happened in their homes and yet that's exactly what uh, Israel did. You know, they just took over Jerusalem and are expanding their taking over Jerusalem despite the fact that since 1947 there has been an international resolution recognizing Jerusalem uh, as a separate and international city, not under the uh, control of Israel. And yet that's under international law. And see, if we don't have the rule of law, what's the alternative? Might is right. And I think that's a very, very dangerous position to be in. So what is happening among the Palestinians is that they were holding on to international law because no country outside of Israel had recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And now Trump is doing that. And so it's saying, well, you don't really have to worry about international law. So the, then there are all sorts of other things, theoretically under uh, international law, that if this one is, is bypassed, can all of these others be bypassed as well? So I, I think it has huge implications down the track for people uh, having the rule of law being the thing that applies and the base from which we work in, in relation to one another. And it's difficult to think of another country where citizens such as the Palestinians are treated like they are. Oh, yeah. I suppose the most comparable one was uh, under apartheid in South Africa. Like that comes in the BDS then. Yeah. You're going to stay there, yes. Peter? Well... My contract ends at the end of this year, 2008. I have a five-year contract. We're a joint venture with the Vatican, and so I'm appointed by the Prefect of the Congregation for the Church of the Oriental, Oriental Churches and our Superior General. And I was talking to uh, our Superior General last January about, you know, my contract finished in 2018 uh, in November, um, and I'm just wondering what uh, you're hoping or you're planning to do, given 
I don't want my successor to have the experience I had. So I, I said, you know, there needs to be a transition between uh, me and whoever follows me so that, you know, they don't have that experience that I had. So he thought for a while and he said, oh, I would just renew your contract. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know... Uh, I am more than happy with that as long as I'm healthy and people want me there because uh, I find it very difficult at times to believe that at this stage of my life uh, I have the opportunity to be there. I've said to numerous people that it is by far the most difficult job I've ever had in terms of the complexity of the situation, the unpredictability and the, you know, the severe restrictions under which we're working uh, because of the Israeli military. But I've never worked in a place where it is so obvious that what we're doing is worthwhile. You know, last night I used a number of clips from uh, interviews I had done with students. And every time I, I see them, you know, I just get choked up because uh, one of them in particular, uh, a young woman who came to us after secondary school as a timid, frightened little girl. And there she was on the screen, you know, this uh, confident, articulate, uh, knowledgeable young woman. And, and when I see students like that, you know, I can put up with all that other stuff uh, when you see the, those uh, sort of students emerging from the place. So, yeah, I, I count myself incredibly blessed uh, to be able to be there. All I can say, finally, Peter, is thanks for being there. Yeah, fine. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much. Okay. Safe trip back. Thank you very much. And that was brother Peter Bray, who's for the last nine years and going for another year, the Vice-Chancellor of Bethlehem University in Palestine. 3CR are selling kofia Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The Muslim citizens of Mindanao, the southernmost island in the Philippines, have faced unlawful killings, destruction of their homes, ill-treatment and numerous other human rights abuses at the hands of the Philippines' armed forces and fear is that their abuse will continue as martial law has been extended until the end of 2018. Human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy visited Mindanao last month and he's on the phone now from Sydney. Peter, did you have any difficulty getting into the Philippines this time? It was easy uh, in, the, in the normal sort of sense, but for the first time ever uh, when I entered Philippines at the Manila airport, the uh, immigration officer challenged me about taking part in a, in a particular rally in uh, Iligan City last November. I managed to talk my way through that and... Um, I had no other trouble at all. But uh, other people, a group of Philippine-American women who took part in a, in a different part of Mindanao, they were all arrested uh, for a couple of hours. That was quite a sensational event and uh, showed that these uh, human rights visits by uh, people from overseas are coming more and more under pressure from the Duterte government. 
So that was the whole reason for the visit. It was a human rights investigation. Yes, yes. it was called an international solidarity mission, and then it's basically an advocacy exercise by which uh, local and foreign participants go and witness certain areas, uh, certain people who've, who've had uh, experienced really gross abuses of their rights. The group that I was in that went to the Marawi city area, there was a group that went to South Cotabato and uh, General Santos City. It's in the southeast corner of Mindanao. Another group went to the Caraga region, which is on the northeast side of the island. The people in the Caraga mission just never reached their destinations. They were just blocked continuously at checkpoints. So that was also quite a gross controlling operation from the military in that case. Is that because they came because of um, martial law? Well, that's what they said rather boastfully, you know. They were saying, listen, it's martial law, we can do what we like. But, of course, there was some legal assistance to get the people who were actually detained released. There was actually no proper cause for them to be detained. The ones in the, the Caraga area, the northeast, it's just a practical thing, you know, that, that is the checkpoint can stop you, demand to search, hold you there, and, and just completely disrupt any sort of timetable you might have. One aspect of it there, and martial law or no martial law, they do that sort of thing sometimes. In that area, they've actually been blocking locals reaching the uh, relevant community of uh, indigenous people for for a couple of months now. So there's, there's really a very serious situation there of relief goods not being able to reach people and uh, a lot of military operations in civilian areas. What did you find at Malawi? I found a lot of very distressed people. Evacuees from the Marawi city fighting, and there's still around 300,000 plus of them in uh, areas around uh, Marawi City. So uh, I visited quite a few, maybe seven different locations just in a couple of days. Everywhere people were very distressed because release goods from the Philippines government, which are meagre at best, have been cut off completely since January in, in one city. And uh, in the neighbouring uh, municipality, they've been cut at least in half. So people were really were hungry, had no idea, you know, how they were going to cope. And they, they were also being told by various levels of officials that they had to leave where they were. They had no idea where they'd be sent to. Yeah, I think things are coming to a head around Marawi City. Maybe this, in this month of March something will, will crystallise, but I don't think it's going to be very good. And I'd imagine if food supplies aren't getting in, medical care is not there either. It's patchy. For instance, I, I was with a group which had relief goods and had a doctor, and the doctors uh, routinely visiting some, you know, they're like volunteers, so it's, you know, it, it isn't really a systematic government program, but, and, you know, different community organisations, principally religious or church, are working hard to give what support they can, particularly in this uh, gymnasium where a lot of families were camped, you know, with cardboard and, and sheets of cloth. There was a doctor visiting every three days. So the children especially had some attention, but all the children were hungry. Is it a rainy season? It was just uh, occasionally showering, so it's not, it's not really a rainy season now, but 
as you know, it's a tropical country, and uh, the pattern, which I saw a couple of days while I was there, was you know, heavy, heavy rain in the afternoon. Did you get into the city at all? No, no. We we reached the border of Marawi City. There's a a sort of uh, celebrated gateway where it says "Welcome to Islamic City of Marawi" above the road. And just inside there, on the left, there was a, a really big evacuation centre with about two, at least two thousand people in it. And then on the right-hand side, just outside of that entrance, there was a roadway to a new said on a big sign, temporary evacuation centre, but it was a very permanent looking subdivision. <laughs> in fact, uh, with the, uh, unfortunately, these sad little bunkhouses, I think that people call them, they were too small, you know, for Filipino families, and they might be able to sleep four people, I think. They had a kitchen and uh, a bathroom, concrete slabs they were set on, they were sort of metal framed with good cladding and uh, septic tanks installed and sealed roads and there were hundreds and hundreds of them so uh, I was, it was hard to calculate but I think I saw over 300 of these there was uh, road, road works and other clearing for, for hundreds more in that area so this is right on the edge of the formal city area of Marawi City but uh, really a rural area a significant number of people might be you know, like a few thousand only might be uh, relocated there and that would be their permanent home. Where the other, you know, 250,000 are going to go, it's nobody's guess, really. And people started to say in several places, look, uh, if we don't get back home, there's going to be a lot of trouble. There's going to be a lot of trouble or people will tend to the extreme or various other euphemisms like that for we will not tolerate having our land stolen from us and we're going to fight for it. You know, the Maori uh, IS thing last year perhaps involved a couple of hundred fighters. Potentially, you know, the, the Philippines government's going to have tens of thousands of fighters, you know, contesting this issue. Unfortunately, we've got a, a sad and uh, really shocking uh, abuse of all these evacuees going on but we, we could see a much more violent fight emerge later this year. I'd say the Australian government's uh, attitude or public statements about what's going on in Mindanao are completely off the mark. What do you believe is the, the real agenda for the destruction of the city and the, and the taking of the people out? It's, it's a sort of uh, land grab uh, in a lakeside urban area. How big is the area? I think there was like um, three or four hundred thousand people actually lived in the urban area itself. I'm not sure how many hectares, but we're talking about a big area. Say, you know, you're talking about all of inner Melbourne, or, or you know, like uh, Richmond, Collingwood, Carlton. Right. You know, you're talking about something as big as that. Then uh, it's, as I say, it's picturesque, and it seems that some very big land developing corporations in the Philippines backed by foreign investors ha have decided you know how to carve it up that's certainly the the, the discussion going on around uh, the different communities we visited yeah i think you could expect to see some resorts some uh, office blocks and some big uh, mega malls where there was you know a thriving 
community of uh, Moro people before. So, yeah, I think uh, a sort of ghastly um, brutalism, of a brutal capitalism or, or something like that is the way to think about it, that, uh, you know, these are the traditional lands of uh, Moro tribes. They've been there forever. They weren't going to move, so along came this opportunity to bomb the bejesus out of the joint and smash it up and drive them away and uh, they won't be they won't be allowed to come back that's what it looks like i'd imagine there must be other people on the island fearing that you know this could happen to them as well yes i think that that's true that's true um, because there's a very big build-up of military uh, forces on the island i went to a human rights summit in davao city which is the biggest city on the island uh, on the eastern side it's a one-day affair but there was about 500 participants and they came from every part of Mindanao one thing that was presented there was like what's what's the the military uh, posture on the island and say it's this is roughly right the Philippines army has got about 100 combat battalions 75 of them are in Mindanao now Mindanao isn't 75% 75% of the population of the Philippines, far from it, it's like 25%. Of those, say, 70, 75 battalions, two-thirds of them are deployed in the southeast, roughly against Lumad communities or indigenous people's communities and the New People's Army, and the other third are deployed on the western side against the Moro communities. One of the speakers uh, stood up and said that the next Marawi city will be in North Cotabato, just as blunt as that. But the the people are full of apprehension for what can unfold in these coming months. What's the population of the island? I think uh, it might be like 15 million people, mm-hmm. something like that, in Mindanao. I'm not really clear on that, but the whole population of the Philippines is now about 100 million. They're not looking to transmigrate people from the other islands to Mindanao. It's a, a land grab for speculators and business more. The, the transmigration's already taken place, you know, in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Yeah. That's been a big uh, social pressure and there's been historically a lot of tension between Christian and Moro, a lot of tension between, let's say, the, the immigrants from Luzon and the Lumads and the pressuring people into the mountains. But now we're, you know, we're well into the 21st century and there's, there's quite a sense of solidarity between Christians and uh, Lumads and Moros against this development aggression. The, the great, you know, it's a very, very severe poverty. There's, there is a lot of land grabbing and uh, people, I think, have come to recognise a more common threat. So the Lumads are being forced more and more up into the hills or the mountains? Yeah, that's happened. And now the mountains have the last remaining forests, you know, original forests. Uh, Huge, huge areas of uh, Mindanao have been logged. It's a bit uh, shocking to to see a vast landscape which you realise, oh, it was once forested and now it's just grass. But there are areas still with uh, forests, and there's, so there's logging companies now turning their eyes to these places. And also there's pretty, you know, rich agricultural lands, and again, agribusiness wants to move in where it's traditional farming by the Lumats. Of course, there's also some very rich mineral deposits, so mining companies uh, are just 
pushing in uh, where you know it was once uh, considered too remote. So it's it's just like a the last frontier type of feel you you get for the the place. Of course, these um, as we know from Australian history, the Aboriginal people have a very strong sense of identity and uh, pride in themselves and and strong communities. Same, it's the same among the Lumads in in Mindanao, and uh, they're not going to be a walkover. And of course, the military have been killing them for decades. You know, so it's it's not an unfamiliar pattern that there's this shootings, massacres, resistance. What's the connection between the Philippines now and the U.S. in in Mindanao? Because there were, isn't it, where there were the big plantations, coconut or were they bananas or whatever? Yeah, look, uh, there's the Dole Philippines. Yeah, that's, that's a, what I was thinking of. Yeah, that's a U.S. company that's mainly into pineapples and coconuts and but other other plantation products. I think we're familiar in Australia after the US Free Trade Agreement came, we got dull pineapple tins, you know. So there's US agribusiness there, and there's also mining companies from Japan and the United States and Canada, and, and to some extent Australia, with BHP subcontracting nickel mining there. But I think the US bigger interest is, is geopolitical, so they, they want to pre-position military assets there and General Santos City right at the southern end of Mindanao is is one of those locations and that they also have a base in Zamboanga City which is on the, the western side and uh, there's several other locations now under various uh, military agreements which are uh, like airfields and ports which are open to US forces in Mindanao and, and in other parts of the Philippines. So you've got to really think about Mindanao partly in terms of resources and, and all of this and grabbing that's going on, but, but also in relation to the U.S.-China standoff. And uh, the U.S. is um, really pressuring everyone, Australia, Japan, the Philippines, Indonesia, India, you know, or to, to be involved in a pressure on China. So uh, the last thing the U.S. would like to see is some kind of detachment of the Philippines or difficulty in managing the situation in Mindanao in relation to those strategies of theirs. Well, your human rights groups, participants have all gone home. What's the role for you now? We have to uh, convey the information to uh, our own networks and communities, uh, but also to the government here in Australia or where it's the United States or Canada or Europe about the rapidly... A deteriorating situation, you know, socially and politically in the Philippines. It's, uh, Jan, I haven't really even conveyed to you yet how, how big it all is. It's a situation where nothing's normal. Duterte comes across as a buffoon, but, uh, he's, he's hardly a joke. The language he uses, you know, so extreme and gross, but it's, it's giving the the green light to you know a huge array of abuses at the lower level of by the police and the army and by paramilitaries and all over all over Mindanao the, these communities are reporting that armed paramilitaries are confronting them you know these are people who are in women's organisations or running schools or they're the local peasant uh, association they're all being or the lumad they're being told to surrender that they're, they're 
just just say that you're New People's Army or you're supporters of the New People's Army. Just give up, surrender. We'll give you money, and and you abandon your community. Just just let us take over. This is uh, scary uh, for everyone, but uh, um, behind it, Duterte is going to change the constitution of the Philippines sometime later this year, perhaps around July, August. He's operating like a bit of a dictator now in, in Mindanao with the martial law, but people fully expect national-level martial law later this year. And uh, I think we're really witnessing the comeback of the Marcos period only worse. It's hard to say how could it be worse, you know, in the Philippines than it was under Marcos, but I think it's already worse under Duterte. Yet, you know, the Australian government, the US government, the British, the European, they all seem to be, yeah, they, they criticise Duterte, but basically it's business as usual. Well, it can't be. It can't be business as usual anymore. And uh, I want to, you know, work away at trying to convey this information to the policy makers here in Australia and in all of our organisations, especially the trade unions that uh, I work with. So are you saying that the main reason that he's able to get away with this internationally with the West is because they want him against China? That's the real bottom line, but it's like a, a gift from heaven that uh, a small number of people who said they were IS started a shootout last year. And so the counter-terrorism, anti-terrorism motif is now the way to cover up all of these other abuses coming from Duterte. Well, just looking at that, was that credible, the IS Yeah, issue? I think it was credible. I think that, you know, sadly enough, uh, a small number of people turned on the video cameras, held up the black flags, swore allegiance to IS, and uh, ended up in that great big uh, shootout. But... Uh, it's really a small number. I do think that they were genuinely doing what they were doing. Unfortunately, you know, it's, a, it's like the Wild West and uh, it's basically a lawless place. The political processes in Mindanao, especially for Moro, had broken down because the uh, previous Aquino government and then Duterte were really not interested in resolving the long-standing issues about land ownership and, and political power in Mindanao. So it, when it's like that, all these little groups can emerge and assert you know, their own agenda. It was a sort of a marketing ploy, I think, by these uh, Maori brothers and some of the other Abu Sayyaf people to say, we're not Al-Qaeda now, uh, we're, uh, we're uh, IS now. It's just sort of um, crazy. But I think they, they did it. I mean, they weren't put up to it by the Americans. I think they just did it themselves. Most of them are dead now, but uh, it was small. I mean, I'll try to convey this to people. At the most, if there were 200 fighters involved in that, that's bad, but uh, there was no need to destroy a whole city to deal with that. The bigger situation is that less than the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, who did try to come to an agreement with the government, they have 15,000 fighters. It's, we're on a different scale altogether. And uh, the New People's Army in Mindanao, uh, I think, would also have something like 15,000 fighters. Why the great obsession about IS when the real conflicts are so different? But it was very, very convenient once, once the opportunity came and I think the, the Australian government, the US government and, and Duterte grabbed it with both hands. You will look back and we'll say that what happened at Marawi City was a, a turning point. Once that happened, 
Duterte could be forgiven for virtually any crime, he in turn promised his loyalty to the US. They're a team now, and uh, a lot of long-term objectives that uh, US capital has had in, in the Philippines, they think they can achieve them now. It's going to be a terribly uh, violent year, I think. And the hundreds of thousands of people who are languishing in those camps. Not only will they not get home, they themselves will start to organise to fight back. That's, that's one very important dimension of what will follow. But I think we should expect that number, you know, 300,000, that to be doubled or tripled by what's going to unfold just in Mindanao, let alone in other parts of the Philippines later this year. So it's a, it's a catastrophic outlook. It's nothing, there's nothing normal going on anymore. It's a crisis and we need the international community to recognise that and start to take steps to head it off. And uh, the Australian government is a very important part of that international community because of our location and our long-term engagement with the Philippines. Has any contact been made with the Australian government? Uh, yeah, as far as you can. And uh, I'm going to be following through myself uh, again. So we've contacted, of course, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, the uh, opposition parties, the Labor and the Greens, and the potential to, to give uh, evidence to the Human Rights Subcommittee of the uh, a standing committee in the Parliament is there. And uh, I, I'm expecting we should be able to do that. And uh, hopefully the media here will will pick up on this. Not yet. Set of developments. Yeah, but uh, we have to push. We have to really push on uh, the editors and the foreign affairs writers to pay attention. There's virtually no Australians in the region. You know, we've just got one or two. That's all. And they're not in the Philippines. So, so you know, you have to push hard for them to realise that uh, there's a story here to get to follow up. Okay, Peter, not a very good story, unfortunately. No, no, but a very important one, Jen. Absolutely. Yep. Thanks, Peter. Okay, okay, thanks for this call. And that was Peter Murphy, human rights and trade union activist, speaking about the situation in Mindanao, the Philippines. That's all for me. I'll be back next Tuesday at four. Done by law. We'll be here in about 55 seconds. Bye for now. <laughs>